You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. I got a bad feeling about this. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! He's looking at you, kid. What we got here is a failure to communicate. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Uh, so, Slappy, you tell me that you saw this movie on a plane, is that right? Uh, in pieces. Um, I, so, I was over in Paris at the time, and I downloaded it on my phone, um, and I had a, also, when I downloaded it on Amazon, uh, in, in Paris, it comes in French, and so there's a little, <laughs> little journey in between to be able to watch this movie, because they just noticed that I was on a connection in France. Um, but yeah, I watched it. I watched it on a plane on a phone. So some of the visual stuff hopefully didn't escape me because I was watching it on a small screen. But I, I put it pretty close to my face, so it, uh, it should envelop <laughs> most of my vision. Well, David Lynch is furious right now somewhere, and he's not sure why. I'll say that first mm-hmm. of all. Second of all, I'm just—I really admire you taking one for the team and watching this movie of all movies on a plane, probably next to someone, right? Actually, well, uh, you're right that it would have been pretty awkward. Um, yes. Otherwise, it, uh, yeah. But, um, uh, the person next to me it was a pretty light flight. So everybody got their own seats, essentially. Um, everyone could just move after the flight started. So, uh, I was pretty much alone and in the very, very back of the plane. I always go for the very, very back corner. So there was no one behind me either. So I could show all my stuff behind me as well. It was actually pretty comfortable. Okay, because I was, I was really, when you said you wanted to watch it on the way back, I thought, oh, oh boy, I hope he's thought this through. I hope he, does he not, has he not heard anything about this movie? Because that's not the kind of movie you want to be watching <laughs> on a tablet next to somebody on like a, you know, international flight. I did watch Black Swan on the way there. And oh. there was some, there's a couple scenes on there that, uh, <laughs> that I, I think the old, uh, older couple that were next to me might have, uh, might have peeked over a little bit and oh judged me. Oh my god. Okay, so you probably remember, uh, first of all, well, I appreciate you taking that risk then, at least, but I'm, I'm glad it worked out for you. Uh, you probably remember that uh, when we did the Lion in the Winter podcast, I pointed out that a lot of people called Die Hard a Christmas movie and asked you if you thought Lion in the Winter was a, a Christmas movie. This is a Christmas movie, isn't it? Isn't Eyes Wide Shut a Christmas movie? There are Christmas trees everywhere. I think so, yeah. So do you think that's, I mean, do you think that's deliberate? Uh, is there, is there a point to it or is it just, because I know the novel, the novella it's based on, this takes place dur- during Carnival. So they just needed something, what, festive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think Christmas is just a, a good backdrop for stories, you know, even though if it's not just really a Christmas movie, Die Hard, um, this movie, Lion of Winter, which I saw, it's pretty good. Yeah, I think it's just a really good background to tell a story in. Uh, I don't want to say that people fight more at Christmas, but obviously there's a lot of family coming together. It's sort of a heightened time of emotions, and that kind of fits pretty well here. But uh, the obvious question is, you know, is he trying to make, is Kubrick trying to make a more explicit point? Is it something about consumerism, or is it about family, or is it just, you know, a useful excuse to have them go to parties and wear masks and things like that? Uh, because, you know, he needed some sort of holiday, like in the original novella. I'm not really sure. Um, like so many Kubrick things... Uh, it seems like you could read five or six different things into it. 
Um, and that's kind of interesting, but it's really hard to pick one. I'm going to actually, I'm going to return to that exact idea a few times during this. Um, and you phrased it better than I think I was going to. Um, but back to your original question about it being a Christmas movie. I'm one of the people that thinks that Die Hard's not really a Christmas movie. I know. Yeah. I bring uh, it up just to piss you off a little bit. Right. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I actually do think though that, um, Lion of Winter is very much a Christmas movie to me, partially for the, one of the reasons you mentioned in that Lion of Winter has, you know, a lot of distant family members that have kind of come together and have a lot of conflict. And that to me, at least in my experience, is very Christmas. Yes. Um, and I like that a lot. Um, the other thing is, uh, the visuals of the, of, uh, of the tree. Uh, after a while of, of spending the time with the tree, it was almost like it was like a, uh, a horror film, like being in the back that was just like, just silent, motionless in the background. I want to, I actually, I forgot to look this up, but I want to say it was the same tree. And that, that seems very Kubrick to me. I think he had the exact same tree follow the people around. Cause I, I think that there was the same tree in like the diner in their home um, at the party. I'm, I think that that one Christmas tree was the exact same. I can't prove it, but that just, it clicks for me that it's like this random presence that kind of pursues uh, the characters through the movie. Well, a sort of if these walls could talk, you know, if this inanimate thing behind them could could listen in on all this, right? What because there's so much of that going on, so many private conversations. Uh, I think you're right. I don't know if it's the same tree, but it definitely looks really, really similar from scene to scene. Yeah, and it's the same kind of like combination of lights, at least, where he he seemed to really like the uh, kind of fluorescent. Like he didn't go with like a white pure white Christmas tree, or like even a uh, a tree that had like a band of lights. It was very purple. A, I want to say almost obnoxious kind of colors that aren't like Christmas colors of like green and red, although greens and reds were in there. It was garish. But just very apparent. Right. Exactly. Yes. Perfect. Well, there's there's two there's two reasons for that, I think. Well, one is that I, I read a little bit about the cinematography and he wanted to use mostly natural light sources. So he needed to have a lot of uh, natural light in there. And I'm, I remarked uh, to my wife the exact same thing you said. It's not the the white yellow kind of Christmas lights, which is what I think of when I think of Christmas lights and the kind I like. Um, I don't usually like the multicolored ones. It was all the multicolored ones. And the reason for that, of course, is this theme of rainbows, which keeps coming up. Um, you remember the models at the uh, party, uh, the two women with crews, they say, we want to show you what's on the end of the rainbow. Um, and then there are these rainbows all over the trees throughout the movie. And then, of course, the costume rental place, also called Rainbow Costume Rentals. Right, yeah. So that's obviously very deliberate. I don't know if there's anything to rainbows themselves or – and this is kind of what alludes to what I said earlier. I don't know if Kubrick's actually making a point by using rainbows or if the fact that they keep showing up is the point itself, right? The callback to itself is the whole thing. There might not be a deeper meaning to the rainbow. It might just be a thing that shows up over and over again, right? Self-referencing. Yeah, possibly because one of the things that when you said that it reminded me of was the uh, – whenever there's – uh, travel it just cuts to like a, a like a one two second thing of cars traveling and then they're in the they're always in the space rather than just hard cutting to the next scene it was just like this interesting habit this tick that i tried to kind of figure out but i really couldn't but because it's this kind of director that has all these kind of things that you're supposed to kind of try to read into but not really sure what it means uh it was just kind of fun almost it was like almost a way to keep my attention during like the transitions that otherwise I don't really care about the transitions. I don't think about the fact that it's transitioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's like the little cart. And I don't, I don't, maybe it was even the same cut. 
I should have actually looked that kind of stuff up to see if it was the exact same like car traveling cut, mm-hmm. but it was pretty similar each time. Well, I guess every time they did one of those, yeah. it was Tom Cruise staring off into the distance for a few seconds, right? So like it was almost like an excuse to show him thinking about what just happened and processing what just happened because so much of this movie is about what happens in his head. There are some of and those it- where it has the traveling one. But there's also like hard cuts where it just like it shows the city street. And that's it. And then it cuts away. But I think you're right that there's also the um, scenes with uh, Tom Cruise's face. And then it fades where the outline of Tom Cruise's face you can see into the next transition scene. Something I thought that was very interesting, and I didn't find out till like the, the, my third watch or so, is that the New York City streets are actually completely a complete set design. Yeah. They're not like the actual city streets. They're completely made on a, a soundstage, I believe, in England. And I was just like, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that going in, uh, but there, I had a, a couple suspicions while watching it. There was a scene early on where I asked my wife, I said, is that is that a green screen he's walking in front of? Because it looks really fake. Either they're shooting it in a very interesting, like, foreground-heavy way or something, like fuzzying the back, or that's a green screen. And it turns out, you know, I looked it up uh, afterwards, and it, it was a green screen. And I definitely noticed some of those streets looked a little fake in the daylight. Um, so I wasn't at all yeah. surprised to hear that. Um but the fact that it's shot in England, that kind of dovetails with the theme because it creates a sort of quasi-fake uh, dream-like feel. And that's kind of what the film is. The whole thing is like a big waking dream. So this is one of those instances maybe where something that seems like a flaw is turned into a strength, sort of slappy like we were talking about with the Gattaca podcast where the low-budget uh, nature of it, uh, the, the minimalism dovetails with the fact that it's a cold future, right? So in this case, the fact that it's so dreamlike, it's okay that things look a little fake because things are always a little off in dreams anyway. I think that's true. And there's a difference between when they're in the colorful areas. They actually tend to use a lot of, as you're saying before, uh, yellow light when they're not in kind of like the dreamlike colorful light. Like it's not, it's, it's like it's daylight, but it's almost always night in the movie. But when they're like in the, uh, when in the bedroom, uh, and they start talking about um, how close they came to cheating or whether or not they were cheating or what was constituting cheating. It was in a very kind of soft yellow light with all the outside world is blue, essentially. Uh, it was like this. I Again, I'm not good enough at this to actually know if there's like a really good meaning to it other than picking up that it happened. But like the like some sort of. Um, clarity inside the room as opposed to kind of outside where it was still like this dreamlike quality and kind of almost being like returned to reality because um, when they're usually in the white kind of yellowish lights it was actually having to deal with the outcomes of the fantasies that they were kind of going through um, and also later on I want to ask you if it was a difference for you I don't know if false writers married but if there's a difference watching this film as a married person Right. Actually, I'm really hoping False Writer will tell us he's not only not married, but currently single. Because if he is, I think that would give us a married person, a single man, and someone in a long-term relationship, right? All three stages. <laughs> tell me, uh, Art. You're in luck. I am single. I oh, am single. woohoo! Yeah. I hate to... I'm sorry to cheer that on, but this is perfect. We'll get three different things here. It's okay, yeah. Uh, okay, so so you wanted to ask sort of about whether or not we have different interpretations of these scenes based on our different relationship statuses, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'm very interested in it because I I could very easily see reading the movie differently based upon how you empathize or don't empathize with the characters, um, which I mean is going to be the case for most movies. But I think this is particularly a frame of mind about marriage and what would constitute cheating in marriage and whether or not, whether or not imagining cheating is on any sort of level with, actual pursuit of cheating uh and i think that i think that that kind of thing is going to be interesting to say the least yeah um and my my wife and i actually kind of like talking about that 
when we've seen a lot of movies that have like hinged on that, right? Because drama comes from like misunderstandings and misunderstandings come from different opinions about things exactly like that. We've actually had a lot of interesting conversations about movies we've seen about like which characters in the right and why and whether or not it's um, understandable. I was going to try to summarize this movie, which is a really futile thing to try to do because it's not that kind of movie at all. But what I kept coming back to, and this might be a reflection of what you're saying, the fact that I'm married, is I want to say it's about the impossibility of really knowing another mind. Because no matter how close you are to someone, no matter how long you've been together, you don't know what's in their head. And that's tricky because the whole idea behind marriage is basically merging two people. So that's what that's what I think of when I see this movie. It's about the fact that he can't really know what she thinks, whether or not she really would have cheated on him, whether or not she really has. Can't really know that. Just like she can't really know if he's actually attracted to his female patients or whether or not they're attracted to him. She knows that he says he's not and that he has the nice clinical approach that a doctor should have and that his patients don't do anything. And that's, But she doesn't really know what's going on in their heads. And that kind of came up again and again with Nick Nightingale. You know, he's he says he's got a family in Seattle. His wife doesn't know what he's up to. Here he is out at all hours of the night. And he can go back and say, I didn't do anything, but she'll never really know. And that's something that just as a married person, you just have to kind of accept. You know, I guess there's a level of trust involved there. But knowing that you can never know uh, is a is an interesting thing to have to internalize. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't come to that conclusion. I'm not sure if it's the if it's for the same reasons um, or if it's for purposes of, uh, of me not being married. As you said before, I'm in a long-term relationship, so I've spoke, we've talked a lot about these sorts of things. Um, but one reason that I the movie doesn't strike me in that same way is that I don't like their relationship. And so I kind of avoid the interpretation of uh, of them trying to know each other's minds because it almost seems like they're avoiding it because, I, I don't know, it, did, it didn't strike me as a completely happy relationship where they cared about the other person, but that there was some sort of at least attempt at long-term commitment um but it that just it doesn't strike me well like i don't like that idea of uh almost settling of they don't really like each other but it's it's this commitment thing i we didn't see them happy often i guess that's one of the problems is i didn't have something that they i didn't see anything that was worth struggling for uh, and that kind of failed to make me empathize. Whereas maybe someone who's married can, it's easier for them to say to themselves, like they kind of just get it. They get that they got married and that, um, there's something worth there and that you know that this is one of maybe the down phases, but that there's a lot of happiness there. Maybe they can sense those kind of things where to me, where I'm in this, in, in, I'm in more of a stage where it's like on the kind of the cusp of deciding about whether or not I would want to stay with a specific person or to, um, go out and look for other things like the character does in this movie. I, I don't recommend doing it that particular way if you do. I will only say <laughs> that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Because if you've been with someone for, you know, let's say 10 years rather than two or something, uh, you will have had a down period, right? And it'll look bad if that's all you ever saw of the relationship. So you're right. There might be a degree of, well, look, we've all had our rough patches. For all we know, this is one of theirs. But I think you're right. When I say that it's kind of about the impossibility of knowing another mind, uh, I certainly don't mean to suggest that this is necessarily a good relationship. If anything, you could say that it kind of means the other thing. Uh, because Nicole Kidman's character, Alice, she gets mad that he's never been jealous, and I think that's kind of her way of saying, because we can't know each other's minds, 
you you should be able to face up to that and be a little worried sometimes, right? It's healthy and normal that you would be a little worried about your inability to really know what I'm thinking or feeling. And he just trusts. He thinks that's the right answer. I just trust you. And she's saying, no, 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 that's fake. You don't really trust me deep down because you can't really know. So you're putting on this face and it's like a fake thing. It's a mask, frankly. You're putting on this mask of someone who completely trusts his wife. So I'm mad that you're pretending. Uh, and that he, unless he faces that, they're not going to have a really open, honest relationship because an open, honest relationship would occasionally say, yeah, I don't like that you were dancing with that guy. I, yes, I, have, yeah. <laughs> I, have, I think I have more to say, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let False jump in on this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, from my perspective, I honestly, I saw that this was actually the beginning of the end for their marriage because, um, yeah, the, the creepy Hungarian guy that danced with Nicole Kidman's character reminded her of this of the uh naval sailor or whoever she was talking about and how much she wanted to you know go off with him and, and um that kind of opened a whole can of worms and then you see Tom Cruise's character that whole thing really affecting him and you saw throughout the movie he almost cheated on her like three <laughs> or four times <laughs> yeah so, so yeah, even though at the end of the movie they were still together, I cannot picture them being together for long, holding out for like say twenty years or so. I, I'd give them like two or three years before one of them finally is like, "All right, I I cheated on you." I guess the what Slappy was bringing up, me being a single guy, I guess I don't know. I'm kind of ignorant to the faith of marriage. Since I've never been married, I don't know how much trust and faith a married married couples have with each other. But that's just my perspective on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I, I don't want to be a stand-in for all married people because no two marriages are really alike. And in my case, I don't you know spend all my time wondering, oh, what's my wife really up to? Like, I I, I do I do trust her, but I think yeah. there's still a fine line between you know trusting your spouse and pretending that therefore you are really the same person, you know, or that you can really know any of this. I think it's just sort of allowing yourself to let your insecurities come out, because if you can't show your insecurities to them, who can you, right? At a certain point, marriage means not having to safeguard your pride that way anymore. I think that actually works a lot in the film where um, Bill also feels like their marriage in that Bill is says the right things a lot in a cold way, the way that like, it feels like he's practiced this. It doesn't feel mm. like it's coming from a genuine place. He just says the right things a lot and it just comes out. It comes out well, but it doesn't come out from like a place of warmth in the same way that when he like he says, like, uh, I trust you because we're married. We have a kid. He says the correct. He, he checks off the list of correct criteria. Right. Uh, and because he named them, he feels like he's complete. And he does that a lot when he interacts with characters. I, I think this will obviously come up a couple of times when he shows his like medical degree yes. uh, to everyone, basically, as like, I'm an objective person, by the way. Here's my medical license showing it. And he just he mm. and he's just very correct a lot. It, it, he doesn't actually say or do things that are just purely wrong. Even like, uh, I want to say the, the phrase that kept coming to my mind is he cheats like a gentleman. Like he, <laughs> he does the, even yeah. when he's doing that, he pays the person when he doesn't cheat with them. And he keeps buying people with money. Like he keeps doing these terrible things, but in the, in the basically the most polite way you could do them. But again, it's from like a, a really distant from the actual act. 
I guess. And that's the way their marriage feels is correct fundamental pieces, but not a confluence between them that seems to actually have warmth to it. I think that's really well put. And you're right. Like he's a doctor. She ran an art gallery. They're both very young and attractive and they have a gorgeous little smart girl and all this. It's all perfect, right? Nice apartment, all in the right circles. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're happy. Uh, I do want to come back to that money thing real quick, but I, I also want to say that I think you're absolutely right that when uh, that everything is very textbook. It's very clinical, kind of like with the doctor thing when he talks about his patients, about how it's not sexual. It's very clinical. She doesn't entirely believe that because clinical means fake. So when he, for example, consoles the woman whose, fa- whose father has died, it just comes off as a banal platitude. You know, he doesn't sound like he's really sorry at all. It sounds like he's saying what a doctor's supposed to say when someone dies. You know, I'm sorry for your loss. Bye. You know, that's, that's it. <laughs> and you see her response, right? The woman's response is kiss him. Because in that Making moment, out, yeah, make out with them. right? And I don't think that's because she really loved him, of course. And I don't even think it's because she needed sex or anything. I think it's really just in that moment she was craving actual human emotion, and all she was getting from him were these robotic responses. Uh, I also think uh, you really touched on something with uh, the waving round of the medical degree and the money. It's kind of garish the way he does it, right? He's waving around money all the time, and he's waving around his credentials all the time. And I think the contrast there is with the kind of super elite friends they have. Obviously, Ziegler lives in uh, an even nicer place than they do, right? It's basically a mansion. And he doesn't really talk to him much about money. You know, he never says, like, send me a bill after he helps him, because he's that rich, right? Like, (laughs) rich people, if you're fairly rich, you might talk about money a lot. If you're wealthy, you don't have to. So these are like the super elite people who do, he don't, they don't say, do you know who I am? Because everybody already knows who they are. He doesn't say, here's your money because he knows he's going to take care of him. Whereas Bill is, you know, upper middle class, you know, just starting to become wealthy. And he still has to demonstrate who he is by waving things around in people's faces, be it money or credentials. In fact, isn't that the first line of the movie? I think my wife pointed out the first line of the movie is something like, have you seen my wallet? Oh, uh, I'm going to check that. That's interesting. Yeah. And meanwhile, I think the first things that Alice says are all, are all how do I look? Actually, that's not, there's another connection there, which is that you look at traditional gender roles. He is all about status and money, and she's all about her appearance. He says, where's my wallet? She says, how do I look? That's the movie in like the first two out of the first three lines. Um, and that's yes. what ends up happening the whole way. You know, they just kind of they slide right into those archetypes. Yeah, definitely. And I also think that um, the thing you mentioned, Slappy, about him sounding kind of wooden, uh, kind of obligatory with some of these comments. I kind of feel like this is a little bit of a Kubrick thing. Kubrick has a lot of talents, but I've never really thought of dialogue as being one of them. I feel like all his films contain a lot of, like, forced, cliché jocularity. Um, I feel like all Kubrick films end up being about visuals and mood and shock, and the dialogue itself is clunky, maybe deliberately so. Yeah, I was trying to think. I, I, I'm i going to be at a disadvantage because I don't think I've seen uh, Kubrick films beyond the big ones. So I've seen like Clockwork Orange and I'm trying to think of Clockwork Orange and it is actually usually it's odd actual words because it's that strange language. Uh, it's odd phrases and odd things delivered kind of straightforwardly against a backdrop of kind of wild scenes. And so I guess it's true that the dialogue doesn't actually do uh, like has like the kind of fun absurdity to it. It's more of the juxtaposition between the two. It's like, and this is actually, we talked about Lion Winter before. Uh, Lion Winter is a great counterpoint to this movie and that Lion Winter is a very dialogue movie. I mean, it makes sense because it, it, I believe it was going to be a play or something like that. Um, or maybe it was directly based on a play. I think so. And it, it definitely, it definitely plays out like a play does. Um, and it's, it's very, all the jokes are very witty and very, very wordplay uh, oriented where the kind of fun parts of uh, the films I've seen of Kubrick um, are more in kind of 
absurdity of very straight faced looks at really weird situations. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, and that kind of fits into what we're talking about where, you know, these crazy emotional things are happening to Bill and he's just saying very scripted, boring things. He's trying to react properly to extreme situations for which there is no proper calm reaction. Like sometimes the normal reaction is to be jealous or angry or freaked out or whatever. And he just refuses to do that. And I think it's, I think that's kind of a theme with Kubrick is that you put these people in these ridiculous, impossible situations and they're trying to maintain their composure. They're trying to do what society expects of them in situations where that is fundamentally absurd. Yeah. I, I feel that, um, that Tom Cruise's character um, throughout the movie, he seems more like the wit- a witness to the events rather than the event himself. That's a know? really w- good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, well, that's exactly what happens when he goes to the house at the uh, near the end. Um, he's he's not participating. He's just watching. Yeah. And with a with a mask that is basically like as impassive and unchanging as his own face when he refuses to react to things. It's like he's wearing a mask the whole time, except now it's official. And speaking of the dialogue, one thing that really struck me, I, I noticed this like a third of the way through the movie. And once I noticed it, it was everywhere. Characters repeating dialogue back to each other all the time. Like someone would say something, you know, I was tired. You were tired. Like that. Like it happened <laughs> all the time. And I don't know, again, if that's deliberate or if... Kubrick is just, I don't know if he's making a point, you know, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that that ties into what I was saying about never really knowing the mind of someone else, never really being sure what they mean or what they think, and about the difficulty of communication, because obviously, you know, you even you, you repeat something back to someone to make sure you understand them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I don't know if that's what he was going for. But once I noticed it, it shocked me how often that was happening. That's interesting. When I, I didn't notice it as a theme, but I noticed it happened when um, he was talking to the two women in the party at the beginning. Uh, he uh, Bill was usually using it as a way to kind of stall for time and, and kind of like non-committally seeing where this is going, but actually having like a plausible amount of doubt about whether or not he was trying to pursue the women. Like he was maintaining that distance, but he was kind of like still seeing what they actually meant. Uh, when he's like the edge, the I think they said like we'll take it to the end of the rainbow, like you were talking about the rainbow uh, motif. Uh, he was, I think he just repeated it right back to them, the edge of the rainbow, huh, or something like that. And that was mostly like a stall for a time and like exactly trying to figure out what they were up to, even though he kind of he knew the general direction, but he was also doing it in a way that if let's say his wife uh, was watching at that point, he could actually plausibly deny and say i didn't i wasn't pursuing them at all he was like very he was towing that line like effectively to the point where it's more suspicious than not towing the line almost he knew exactly where the line was um and even when he wasn't repeating things he was just sort of like you say stalling for time when the prostitute asks him if he wants to come in he says you want me to come in first of all he says says it right back to her then she walks him to the apartment and when they stop outside he says you live here like, yeah, of course she lives here. What, you think she's just stopping at a random, you know, apartment just to show you the door? Like, of course she does. But he, <laughs> but he asks the obvious question because he's just not sure what to do or what to say. Yeah, I guess I guess um, Kirik might have been trying to show Harford's state of mind throughout that by not being able to have great conversations, keep repeating himself. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, 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 I didn't pay close attention to the dialogue. I was mainly – the visuals was what really – like I, I was really a fan of the visuals and um and the dialogue was kind of a eh, like I wasn't paying too much attention to it, so I honestly didn't really notice the repeat after like four viewings. I still didn't even really notice how much the dialogue repeats. 
Well, that's fair because no, almost nobody watches Kubrick films for dialogue anyway, I don't think. But since we're talking about dialogue, Slappy, I think you read the screenplay. So I'm guessing, uh, probably true with a lot of Kubrick films, probably read pretty different than it watched. Oh, yeah. Read very different. In fact, I might even leave that kind of stuff till the end because um, it's going to be there's going to be like alternate takes that kind of change the scenes like they the, the scenes changed a lot. Um, honestly, between the two, it had the same same general story structure. I think there I don't think there were any uh, acts or scenes that did not take place or did take place. They just took place kind of differently. Well, one thing I want to talk about as well, I mean, I've already alluded to this earlier, sort of the dreamlike quality to all this. Um, it's based on a novella, a very old one, I think, 80 or 90 years old, uh, the title of which translates to Dream Story. And obviously, one of the catalysts for all the marital conflict is Alice's dream. And he says to her at the end that dreams are never just dreams, right? You know, he's saying, just because you didn't do it, the fact that you dreamed it means you want it, and the fact that you want it upsets me. He finally kind of admits that at the end, which I tend to take as progress, at least in this context. And there's a lot of dreamlike stuff going on. There's kind of the hazy colors. There's what we mentioned earlier, the green screen, uh, the set doesn't look quite real. Uh, nearly all of the major events take place at night. Um, and during the day, they're just sort of going through the motions. But at night, at the wolf hour, you know, everything comes out like a dream. There's that theory of dreams you probably both heard that one of the ideas for why we dream, which nobody really knows, is that you're confronting things that you've been avoiding thinking about, right? They come out at night, through your subconscious so the whole movie kind of is one big dream in that sense i think yeah and that brings me to a big question um in the in the end it what is um the mask on the bed was that actually there or not i think it definitely was actually there but i've heard um a couple different theories because in the novel it's explained explicitly i think in the novel she finds it and leaves it on the bed to tell him that whatever he's been doing is okay and he confesses it all to her. But in the movie, it's pretty ambiguous, isn't it? Um, first of all, like you said, yeah. is it even there? But assuming, even assuming it's there, did he leave it behind? Did she find it? Or just as likely, did the secret society put it there as a warning? You know, we can get to you. Yeah, I, I always figured that he just lost it at the, at the house, the mansion where that, that secret society was. But, um, it could have been possible that he had it on him at the apartment and just forgot it when he returned it to the, uh, to the costume store, which means which means she put it there. Then, if that's the case, yeah. Or um, maybe for like a message to his family, the society people went to his house and gave it to his wife, and then just said maybe like, "Hey, your your husband left this at our place or something." I don't know. <laughs> this could be a difference because I was watching on a phone. Uh, I could not tell if she was alive or sleeping, or if she was sleeping or dead. When there was the mask, so I wasn't sure if it was a, uh, like a, they had, the scene was supposed to be showing like the, se the secret society had killed her and left the mask behind kind of a thing. Um, so in that, I, I immediately took it as the secret society had left it. But then afterwards, when it was clear that she wasn't dead, um, I, I wasn't quite, I, I, I had thought that she would either have found it. I don't feel like he, the, the left it part kind of makes sense to me, but then a, at some level, she would have probably have seen it at least when she um, was sleeping next to it. Makes more sense that she found it then. Although I got to say, as far as messages goes, not as clear as the horse head in the bed in The Godfather. A little more abstract <laughs> than that one, uh, but a similar basic idea. But either way, I mean, if you do take the movie as sort of dreamlike, you don't need to work out the actual logistical machinations, right? You could just say, what matters here is the symbolism. The symbolism is that this is his latent desire or guilt or whatever, and it's coming out. 
And it's laying there, and he sees it next to his wife, and that's when he confesses to her about everything he's been doing. Like, that's the real important part. I mean, you got to come back to the theme of masks, right? Putting on that face like he does, um, and all the symbolism that comes with that, because, for example, at the mansion, you see that they kiss with masks on, right? But they can't kiss. They can't actually kiss. Their lips don't touch. Even the lips of the mask can't really touch, but they do it anyway. They're aping intimacy. It's not real intimacy. So maybe yeah. maybe Kubrick's saying that's all all relationships are a fake uh, like that to some degree, or maybe he's just saying this one is. It's not real intimacy, but these people are trying to make it feel like it is. I don't know, but either way, it's it's the fake version of the real thing. I also got to give a shout out to the to the music during the uh, mansion scenes. Creepy. It was very yeah, very creepy. It gave um it gave a lot of atmosphere to the whole ritual and. I, w- I was drawn in by the music, mainly by the music. Oh, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, the the music, because there's, there's two pieces of music that stood out. One was the very, very minimal piano. Uh, obviously, that was very tense. That came up a few times, that exact piano line. I think they used it multiple times throughout the entire movie. But where they just had, like, the kind of creeping piano. And then at, yeah. like, at every point moment, there'd be, like, a... Uh, I'm going to guess it's a minor chord, because it always sound... It was a chord... And so it sounded fuller, but it always sounded wrong. Um, so either was a minor chord or some sort of broken chord. Um, and then the other music that was there was uh, the kind of chanting and then the backward speech. So it was interesting because it was it either was supposed to be something that was impossible and therefore kind of like a dreamlike thing that wasn't actually happening, that Bill was just hearing, or they had speakers. And that's just some sort of illusion that they were trying to play because Almost all the like singing, I guess, in the chanting part was actually reversed speech. Yeah, no, there was definitely some audio equipment next to Nick Nightingale. Uh, I we didn't get a great look at yeah, it. Yeah, I saw it too. Yeah, Th- there were a few like uh, I don't know if they were like amplifiers or subwoofers or so- there was something next to him. That's interesting because if it if that's true, where it was um, the backward speech was actually there for everyone to hear and it was the uh, recording that lends more credence to the what um, I can never remember names very well the rich manor guy. Uh, at the end and that at the beginning and Ziegler Ziegler. Yes. Yeah. Um, his, I, his, uh, assertion that, um, it, this, it was a show and there's a lot of theater to the mansion and that, and the, but that it's not real. And so if there's not the actual backward speech, then like we can actually limit it like that. There was that the film is trying to imply that they actually have some sort of magic ability or whatever to like warp their speech. It just sort of ties into the whole secret society aspect. It doesn't really tell us how real it is, right? Maybe it's just a bunch of bored, super rich, wealthy people looking for an excuse to be debaucherous, right? That's kind of how I take it, at least. Yeah, like um, what Ziegler said when Harford was, they were in the pool room, um, he said, like, you don't want to know something, I don't know the exact words, but something like, you don't want to know what kind of people were at that party, <laughs> Because you wouldn't sleep on. Like, yeah, if I told you the names, you wouldn't sleep so well. Yeah. Implying that there's like senators and diplomats and all sorts of crazy yeah. stuff going on. That actually yeah. ties into uh, it. Talks about the Satanist um, kind of maybe even pagan thing is maybe that also might have influenced the Christmas setting. It's just putting putting the tree in the background all the time uh, and kind of like having like a mixture of this is this symbol that we uh, pagan symbol that's kind of been reappropriated into something that people are really comfortable with. Um, although I, I I think that even the pagan version of it was not it did not have like an insidious meaning, although I don't actually know what it was, but it's not like it actually had some sort of evil behind it. But um, the symbols in the uh, in like uh, in the mansion where they had the masks and appeared very creepy 
and the incense all appeared very creepy, but um, the the roots of most of those things taken by themselves are not not very evil or not very uh, uh, satanic. Even. Yeah, the uh, roots of the tree, if you will. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, you're right. Very pagan masks, although worth pointing out that was the only scene where there was nothing Christmassy at all. That's true. Um, yeah. So they're definitely trying to kind of draw a line there, right? This is this is where that part of the culture ends. There's, this is a whole other world, and Bill, as much as he might want to, can't break into it. You know, they it's really yeah. striking, borderline supernatural, that they notice he doesn't belong pretty much right away. You see those two figures look at, uh, down at him from the balcony, and while we never know for sure, I assume that's Ziegler and his wife. It feels like Ziegler and his wife. It feels like yeah, people I, could just, I believe so too. Right, and people can just tell he's not supposed to be there. It's like, it, frankly, it, that feels like a dream too, right? You're naked in the classroom. You're in the wrong place. Everyone's looking at you. Well, he almost was literally naked. They tried to make him take oh, his yeah. clothes off. Uh, it's like imposter syndrome run amok. Like he just doesn't belong. He keeps flashing credentials. He try, he, he, you know, money, anything, status, anything he can do to try to get into this world. But it's just, it's he's not in that league. And you, you could tell, and you could tell that he wanted to be in there. Right, but he was, wasn't sure about it, right? He was hesitant. The two girls in the beginning, I don't know if they're the same two girls that are on the arms later in the mansion, but I kind of took that to be a thematic callback. They invite him to the end of the rainbow. I kind of take that uh, as them inviting him into this debaucherous world, and he doesn't accept. And then later on, he kind of wishes he had, but it's too late. Yeah. Kind of the same way he decides to cheat with a prostitute and then changes his mind. And then he tries to come back anyway, but it's too late. Yeah, yeah and good thing, because... Good thing. Yeah, she has AIDS and stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. that's, I could very succinctly put, she has AIDS and stuff. Like, it's, well, <laughs> I just, I, I think the, the common theme is that he keeps wanting to do these things, and then it turns out that by the time he's decided to, he realizes, oh my god, that would have been a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. And that, in general, plays weird to the, uh, to how they, how this movie portrays cheating, which is very different than the way that most movies portray cheating. Most movies portray cheating as a moment of weakness. This is not a moment of weakness. He is partic- He is trying to cheat. He's putting himself on paths where he will end up cheating, which is different than a kind of um, when she talked about uh, her near cheating experience. But she's at the whim of a fantasy. This she did not go out and seek um, this sort of fantasy about this person. It just kind of happened. She says, "I was relieved when he was gone." Right. Yeah. Exactly. Where she felt like she was out of control, um, and Bill doesn't ever feel like he's out of control. He might even be seeking for a situation to put him in a situation where he is actually out of control. And then he does succeed, I suppose. But this, the, the cheating in, in that Bill's pursuing would be, there's a difference between someone who uh, would cheat out of like a fantasy or moment of weakness and someone who cheats by pursuing cheating is actually trying to, uh, it's not quite clear why Bill wants to cheat so much. If it's a masculinity thing, if it's a, it just feels just thing or if it's a curiosity thing. Um, but he's definitely searching for it and he's trying to find that place where most of the time when this cheating, uh, when we have, when we have films about cheating, it's just like this one weak point and you do something terrible to some, someone else. That's and that's kind of life. the thing of the movie. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. When you said that, a scene that um, reminds me of him maybe wanting to find his masculinity is when he's walking down the street and he runs into those, uh, I guess they were baseball players, college players, and they, you know, bump into him and start calling him, you know, homophobic slurs and stuff. That probably took a shot of his up to his manhood, and that was probably contributed to his desire to uh, to want to maybe 
cheap because right after that scene was the uh, scene with the uh, prostitute that invited him in. And if he ne- if he never um if that scene never happened, he probably would have said no to the prostitute, and and we wouldn't have a movie really. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was gonna say. I agree one thousand percent. He's emasculated, and then a second later, it's well, okay, I'll come in, sure. Um, and then yeah. The fact, and then, but it leads to further emasculation because he decides not to go through with it. It's almost like, I hate to say, it, had, it felt like impotence, right? Like he couldn't perform, he couldn't go through with it. So it ends up being yeah. even further emasculation. And then, you know, next thing you know, he's, it's getting worse and worse, right? It's no snowball effect, pretty much. Exactly. To reassert his masculinity, he has to do more and more extreme things. Uh, I am really happy with what you just said, though, Slappy, about uh, kind of putting yourself in situations to cheat. This is one area where I will unabashedly say that being a married man uh, confers insight. This is something I already always sort of knew, but it's clearer and clearer to me the longer I'm in the same relationship. When people say it just happened, that is never true. There are a thousand decisions before the actual decision to cheat. You know, like, like, let's say you're enamored with someone at work. You make a decision to talk to them on your lunch break. You make a decision to flirt a little bit. You make a decision to make sure you're in the same room as them later. And then to indulge this little thing and that little thing and share your sandwich. And, and you know, there are so many choices. And this was actually in the news very recently. I don't want to get too political or whatever, but there was this whole thing about Vice President Mike Pence recently saying that he doesn't dine with uh, women alone without his wife there. And some people thought this was terrible, and some people thought it showed that he didn't trust him, his wife or himself or whatever, and other people said, you know, back off, you don't know what a marriage is like, whatever. So people fought about it. But this is kind of the same thing, the sort of self-binding thing, where you it's one thing to say, I'm not going to cheat. It's another thing to say... I'm not going to let myself get close to cheating, you know, whereas Tom Cruise, uh, Bill, is doing the exact opposite. He's putting himself in all these situations. He's walking right up to the edge of the cliff and then hoping he can balance on it. Yeah. Yeah, I can. I completely agree with that. And it's actually like a, a big worry of mine. Uh, one of my favorite songs of all time is a remix of It's Hard to Say No. Um, and I think I would be really bad in a situation where somebody was... I, I'm bad at people that are more confident than myself. And if somebody was really pursuing me, it would be difficult for me to say no. And I've talked to my girlfriend about this so that basically all of my protection is never getting me that situation in the first place. And I completely agree. The key to not cheating essentially is to never it's like to notice when you're looking for it inherently. And when you're trying to kind of put yourself in like when you're trying to put yourself in that moment of weakness where it's more understandable when I I've kind of set myself up where I've told it like basically if if I ever cheat on you, it wasn't a mistake. And now I'm now it's even more unlikely, I think, because because I've kind of set myself up like there's you can't forgive me if that ever happens because I will have absolutely made a 100 choices leading up to it. Correct. You really don't know until you're in that situation where exactly the line is. Uh yeah, I completely agree with that in in a way that makes me kind of like dislike parts of myself because that is the tempting part to me is the validation part. It's not actually the sex part. It's the part it's the idea that I could convince someone to have a very intimate experience with me, with me, a very protected experience, something that people actually care about. It's proof that somebody felt something for me, right? Well, that ties right back into what I was saying about kind of the impossibility of knowing another mind. You want something that feels like proof that the other person cares about what's taken place. You know, anyone can say something, but you don't really know if they mean it. But then there are experiences that you can share. For a lot of people, sex is just, is that experience, right? It's the closest thing to a currency that exists for emotion because it, it people generally know what the value of it is. It's generally the value of it is pretty accepted across a lot of people. 
Uh, so it actually you can you can show it to someone and it can mean something where like uh, that's it's more difficult for like a gift that someone might have given to you. Like, for example, like in this movie, if Bill gave his wife a beautiful necklace, right, it would not tell you very much because Bill might have just bought it because he knows that's the right thing to do. You spend money on another person or he has where a lot of money buying. Exactly right. Where if someone else bought a necklace because they hunted out the specific necklace, they know all of the stones in it mean something to this person, right? You're talking about like expensive necklaces. Even that is like a product of you know what what kind of means do you have? Like if a if a little boy has a favorite toy in the world and he gives it to a little girl, isn't that worth more than someone who's got plenty of money buying a diamond necklace? You know, it's worth more to him um, because it's more important to him. It, we basically we we just taken an hour on this podcast to say it's the thought that counts. And it's, well, that, that that actually wow, that's actually that's actually perfect in a lot of ways because that's exactly what they're trying to do is equate actions with thoughts of actions and whether or not one means more because it's interesting because he we're he's pursuing it so hard because she thought about it and she wants to think about it but he's taking all these actions and the actions are honestly worse than the thoughts in a lot of ways and it's interesting because he's still it's just that one burning thought that uh that's killing him and i think it also plays in the uh, uh emasculation where he might feel emasculated where he does feel it seems like he thinks he's better than his wife um and that kind of and, and that might actually not bear out in the movie but that just might be a gut thing that just no stings i, me I a agree bit. i got that feeling too for better or worse right and so it's kind of like what she had this fantasy but she's she must be enamored with me um, like all, and it's actually true. A lot of women are enamored with him in the movie. Like they approach him. Um, he puts himself in the situations where they kind of approach him. Although I guess when he was walking down the street, um, that was one time where he was, he didn't put himself in that situation. All they just approached him and at the party, those two women probably actually approached him too. Uh, but he just never, he doesn't, it just kind of doesn't enter his mind. And then when he finds out it enters her mind, he's like, what? She almost did this when I'm obviously the person that's the catch. All these women kind of want to put themselves uh, near me for that kind of intimate moment. Uh, so you you mentioned a little bit about um, his sort of dwelling on the fantasy with his wife and the naval officer. I'm glad you mentioned that, too, because the most significant fact maybe about this movie is that Kubrick cast a real couple for it. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were married at the time. And it leads to some really meta scenarios. Like this whole thing almost feels like performance art because they're a real couple. Then they play a couple fighting about jealousy and then they get divorced in real life. Uh, I'm not sure if it was immediately yeah. afterwards or anything, but it almost feels like performance art. And there's this scene, right, where Tom Cruise's character is imagining his wife being groped, which means his actual wife is being groped. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to mention how Tom Cruise and Nicole Kevin were actually married and this movie actually they say that this movie actually sort of damaged their relationship because they wound up getting divorced what um just a couple years later i believe so yeah this this move this movie definitely sends um you know a powerful message to about relationships if the two leading stars you know were affected so much by it yeah or maybe it was there and that's why they accepted it right like I, who knows maybe they thought it would bring them closer um but I, I i keep coming back to this quote i don't have the actual quote but i have the gist of it uh it's from steven soderbergh and i really like it uh, maybe it's apocryphal 
Uh, and he says that when anyone takes their clothes off in a movie, it immediately becomes a documentary, which I always take to mean that you can't fake that, right? You can pretend to care. You can pretend to cry. You can pretend to be sad or happy when you're acting. You can't pretend to be naked. And Nicole Kidman can't pretend yeah. to be groped by this other actor. So it's literally happening. And Tom Cruise is literally uh, playing a character who's upset that it's happening when it's actually happening. And that ties back into what we were saying about actions and intentions, because you know, with intentions, you can say, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I said I loved this person, but I'm an actor. I was faking it. But you can't say, this guy didn't really grab me. I didn't really kiss this person. You're an actress, you know, you, but you did it. It actually happened. And there's yeah. something about that, the objective fact uh, that we can't get over, which, again, also ties back into knowing the other person's mind. You know, you can't know what they were thinking, but you can know what they literally did. And that's why that always seems to carry so much more weight. It's interesting that you also brought that up because um, I was just reading various pages. Like I, I saved a bunch of pages on my phone because it's still not internet in the skies for some reason. Um, <laughs> and one of them was just like weird things about the film. And one of the weird things was that um, the scenes where Nicole Kidman is being groped, Tom Cruise was not allowed to be there. Oh, uh, he was oh. not allowed to see them. Oh. And Nicole Kidman was not allowed to describe them to Tom Cruise. So he Kubrick actually wanted to put jealousy in Tom Cruise where she was bound to not say anything. Now I don't know how she she did that because maybe she was more concerned about her marriage than Kubrick's promise or whatever. But uh, I don't know. It feels like it feels like actors at that level probably take those kind of things seriously. So if that's true, then um Tom Cruise knows that those scenes happened, never saw them until the final cut um which apparently the final cut was just a few a few weeks before he died less than a week um, yeah 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 um and anyway uh but but there was actual real jealousy there was an attempt at real jealousy uh kind of machinated by uh by kubrick well that's sort of the performance art aspect did he literally destroy a marriage i mean he might have his last film his last act on earth might have been to destroy a marriage yeah <laughs> I was just maybe say, he's a uh, where he, that was like, that's his purpose was filled and he could leave the earth. Yes. I, I only exist to break up Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. That's my, my work here is done. And then he floats off to whatever alien planet he came from. See, I didn't really notice a bunch of like hidden things, like hidden messages. Like I believe the Christmas tree, I believe you guys are more observant about that than I was, <laughs> you know? Well, it's interesting you say hidden things though, because that's one thing that Kubrick is like infamous for is that he, puts all sorts of little things in the backgrounds of his scenes. Um, yeah. And in fact, I'm going to risk making Kubrick fans mad here and say that I think that's one of the reasons I find him a little overrated is I think he his films lend himself lend themselves so well to that sort of overanalysis because he stuffs them to the gills with things in the background. But like I mentioned earlier, I feel like sometimes there's not an actual purpose underneath it. Sometimes the reference is its own thing. So he puts a tiger, a stuffed tiger next to the prostitute on her bed, and then later on when Nicole Kidman's in the toy shop talking to him, there's the same tiger toys are behind her covering a whole wall. So is that an actual reference to something? Does the tiger symbolize anything? Or is the only symbol here's the tiger again? You know, just tying this to that. Is Are the connections actually overlaid over a real thing or a real message, or are the connections the whole point, right? Like Easter eggs. And sometimes I wonder if that perfectionism that he was so famous for was really just like this obsessive Easter eggism. Um, and maybe there's not always substance underneath it, which is why basically nobody tends to agree uh, about what Kubrick's films are about. People just speculate endless, endlessly and say, well, it's one of these half dozen things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> 
that sometimes it might not be much of a purpose, but um, but yeah, I do believe that there ha- there are definitely some with deep meaning, mm-hmm. but we don't know which ones. And yeah, I feel like sometimes it's like a game for him, right? How many things can I squeeze into the background of the shot? Um, and then meanwhile, you know, then he dies, and then we spend twenty years wondering if the stuffed tiger means anything. When in reality, it was just, hey, look, that stuffed tiger again. Like I don't know, I'm being, yeah. I'm being yeah. very critical of him right now. But yeah, it was probably just a reminder of what ha- happened that night because it was, it was a very strange night for him. <laughs> right, like maybe he'll never escape it. Right, it's always the backdrop, something like that. Yeah. Have, have both of you guys seen Room Two Thirty Seven, that documentary about the various interpretations of The Shining? I have not. I have not, no. Oh, okay. Well, otherwise, we'd probably have a lot to talk about there, but it's basically, it's on Netflix, I think, um, and it's just like an hour and a half of Shining superfans talking about their ornate, complicated, often convoluted theories about what The Shining means, and there are plenty of interesting little things in it that you would have never seen that seem very cool. But there's also these, like, crazy... It's like listening to conspiracy theorists, you know? Like, they're just stretching for every little thing they can get their hands on. And they have totally different ideas about what the film actually means. And at some point, you can't tell if this stuff is brilliant or if Kubrick was just really good at just adorning his scenes with extra little details, throwing so many dots out there that you could ultimately use them to connect into any shape you wanted. Oh, damn you. I was exactly going to say that. It's like it's not hard to make any shape if you put as many dots as you possibly can. Yeah. And the only thing that I can say about putting a lot of Easter eggs in there is that it makes the fact that there are uh, uh, returning visual motifs that that that's the theme. Um, that there is an idea of that. And that sets up the the it basically tells you about the world. It's almost like a uh, a physical property. It's just saying like like gravity exists uh, in this film. There are visual motifs. Some of them might actually not have purpose, but they're the purpose of some of the more red herring visual motifs is just informing you that there are a lot of visual motifs here and look for them. Right. Like it might be just filmmaking at its most meaningless, but also purest. You know, it's just look what I can do. I can draw these connections. I can draw your eye to this spot. I can have these things show up again and again. And it doesn't matter if they mean anything because you're noticing them and therefore you're engaged. Right. Like, like, like it always bothers me when a filmmaker says, I like leaving my films open to interpretation so you can read whatever into. And I'm like, no, that's such a cop out. Um, even though yeah. I, even though <laughs> I, I appreciate agree. it sometimes, you know. Um, but with Kubrick, Kubrick is the king at that. I feel like all his films are like that. And that's why some people absolutely love him. And some people think that this is like really pure filmmaking because it's nothing but that. Uh, but to someone like me who wants like a theme, an answer, you know, a message a, a little bit, it can be infuriating. It's the difference between something like a, a very abstract piece of art, although I do really like abstract art, where it's just kind of messy paint thrown on it. Um, which, by the way, is not Jackson Pollock. I'm going to say <laughs> Jackson Pollock was actually very precise. Uh, his, uh, I actually don't even understand the math behind Jackson Pollock's uh, work, but it's uh, it's it's basically approximating fractals and the growth of crystals. Uh, and he, I don't think, I'm not even sure if he knew it, um, but it's actually really close. Uh, and maybe this is like one of the conspiracist things, but I had a great art teacher that overlaid crystal crystal growth and then cellular growth, and it matches up really well because they're fractals. We're sure this isn't like playing Dark Side of the Moon with Wizard of Oz, though. <laughs> That's true, or like playing yeah, them both backwards. Yeah, it, it, it could be complete reaching. But anyway, it's the difference between a well-set-up illusion, like thinking of a piece of a sculpture that has uh, different faces depending on the angle that you're viewing it versus kind of an amorphous face where there's the amorphous face 
you can look at it and you can get a lot of different ideas about what the face is about or what the face is feeling or whatever. But for the illusion one where it shows very particular different faces, it's very technical. You have to you have to think about the viewing angles a lot. And that's kind of the because uh, I agree with you that sometimes artists use uh, it's open to interpretation uh, as a cop out. And so I really like the films where there are specific different interpretations you can get from it that could only exist with very careful uh, 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 artistry uh, and uh, craftsmanship. So you're saying that Stanley Kubrick is the Jackson Pollock of films in that there are a lot of precisely placed elements that taken together look like chaos. Uh, no, I don't like Kubrick that much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think he's, I, I put him in the former, but that's, I know that's totally her- uh, heresy, but I, 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 I'm, I'm okay with his films. I've never hated any film of his that I've seen, and I've, but I've also never loved it. And I think part of that is I don't enjoy the gamesmanship of searching for the meanings in his films when they're uh, obtuse. And there's so much, I don't like films that are overloaded with what I feel are red herrings or just things I don't enjoy. It's like a it's like a puzzle game that has a lot of puzzles that aren't interesting, but there's a lot of puzzles there and I could spend a lot of time doing it. So I would say that if this was a DVD and I uh, if there was Kubrick films versus other films that are very straightforward meaning and I had to go to Desert Island that also had a DVD player, Kubrick films might be the thing I would take because there'd be more value in repeat viewings. But at this at this kind of stage, I'd rather see a different movie. I- I love the phrase Desert Island DVD player. I think that's a, that's a really good way to put it. Maybe you just need a bigger screen. <laughs> it's true. Then that That's actually very fair for this one is um, uh, while the, my phone is very crisp and was very beautiful, uh, I probably did miss a lot of like the larger visual things, especially small things that'd be in the background because as close as I got, it still only enveloped, I want to say a quarter of my vision because I, I do look at it kind of close and I'm sure I'll get cataracts or something. But uh, I'm I'm sure that I missed a lot from it. And that probably is a shame. Um, well, I can start going into the screenplay stuff because it was interesting because I really love uh, screenplays. Uh, I only started reading screenplays basically for this and then and, uh, for plays and whatnot. But uh, there's a lot of notes in this screenplay. And there's a lot of things that changed a lot in, uh, in between the making of the screenplay and the actual final product. One of them... Uh, I think this is the most significant is in the original screenplay, or at least the draft of the screenplay that I saw, there are prominent obnoxious voiceovers of what's going on in Bill's head during a lot of these scenes. Wow. And they would have been terrible in this movie. Yeah. They they would have. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Right. There's a lot of like when you spoke about like where it shows his face when like they're driving and you're just kind of like thinking about what he's thinking about. Those scenes had voiceovers in telling exactly what he was thinking. And that's terrible. Bill was blah, blah, blah. And there was like, it was kind of poetic. It wasn't direct enough. Cause like usually when you read stage directions, it's kind of to the point. Um, uh, and there was a little, there was like some, there was kind of flowery direction also, uh, that looked differently and it was in little italicized lines that were actually kind of cute. Like, uh, when he was, when she was dancing with the Hungarian man, the things that appeared to be kind of, um, uh, just drunken looks back and forth were actually very precise. Like uh, she spent a lot of time drunk in this movie. I I, I couldn't tell if she was uh, good at pretending to be drunk or bad because sometimes drunk looks really fake and over the top and you know scene chewy. Uh, I'm not really sure. I definitely agree with that sentiment in that I'm not sure if it was good or bad because it made me uncomfortable. But real drunk people make me really uncomfortable. I'm I'm terrible around drunk people, especially people that I know. Um, I don't I don't personally like drunk people, uh, and it's like a, actually a problem for me because um, when I'm around friends that are drunk, 
it's like they're not themselves. They're just another drunk person because the drunker someone gets, the more like other drunk people they get, which <laughs> is in a way kind of what people look for when they get drunk. And I've just never enjoyed alcohol. It just does not sit well with me. Uh, but then when I'm around friends, they the person that I really care about vanishes and i'm just around a drunk stranger and i hate it it always makes me so uncomfortable it sands yep. down all the peculiarities about their personality yeah yeah it's ironic because i feel that drunk being drunk is bad acting pretty much so i don't think there's really <laughs> a, a difference yeah well the funny well it's funny you mention that because that's what i think of when i think of bad bad drunk i think of like people thinking they're being subtle and cagey, but they're not, right? Because, like, a, a drunk will wink right. at you in the most exaggerated way, but they think they're being smooth. It's like a bad actor who thinks they're good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's like, when she's drunk, she has very drawn-out phrases, and it's I think she's kind of going for, like, a mysterious seduction thing, but she yes. just looks like she's naive and, like, silly and foolish. Yeah. Uh, some of the, so some of the, like, the dialogue things, it's where, like, uh, when the Hungarian man, uh, where he says, he asks her, and you're here with your husband tonight... Um, I am indeed. And he says, how sad. Um, uh, it, in, the, in the state direction, it says, uh, Alice makes a that's life face. Uh, <laughs> and there's uh, one that I love, which is um, at some point, um, Bill makes a uh, or somebody makes a joke, uh, a jokes uh, or sorry, somebody makes a joke and they laugh at their own joke. And then the two people that they're, uh, they're talking to, uh, apparently he laughs without getting a penny's change. Which I like that phrase, and I've never heard that phrase before. I even Googled it, and I've never heard it. I what, is, find it. what does it mean? I don't understand. A what penny's that means. change, I guess, because there's no change that you can get from a penny. It's the smallest increment you can get, so he gets nothing. So, like the smallest oh. laugh? I guess not. I think he gets a literally zero. Like I think what it's 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 a really innate way of saying that there was no response. That if if he laughed and he got <laughs> nothing from the other people, but it's like a weird way to say it, especially in something where it's a flowery way to put something in uh, dialogue notes that's not going to be spoken. And so it's more, I think it's more supposed to put the person in a mindset uh, about where they are, because it would never be seen if the, if this was the actual thing they read from the words, a pennies change, the little cute phrase wouldn't ever show up. It's more about, I guess, setting the mood for the character. Yeah, it's more like instructions for the director. Here's the emotion you're going for. Right. It's like an awkward silence. Right, and I guess he co-wrote it with someone. So I'm wondering if those directions were more trying to guide Kubrick. Because normally I'd say, unless it was notes to yourself in the future, normally the director wouldn't, if he's going to be the, uh, if the writer is going to be the director, you wouldn't need to have that many notes. Yeah. But I guess it's important for the director to remember what they were saying, because screenplays are pretty long. Yeah. And they, I'm sure they take a long time to do, and so you probably didn't remember what you might have been trying to do with this scene. Well, and Kubrick yeah, in particular, he's known. Especially for this movie, yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, you were going to say this movie in particular, right? They filmed it for 15 months. It held a Guinness World Record at one point for longest continuous shoot. And uh, yeah. even though he probably didn't know that when he wrote it, uh, Kubrick was already uh, a director famous for going over time and shooting a lot of... Uh, a lot of takes of each shot, and maybe he had enough uh, self-knowledge to realize that he was going to need to revisit these things uh, months and years after he actually wrote them. Yeah, he was he was known as a perfectionist, so that's why he's he only made, what, ten movies or so in his lifetime? And not just pumping them out, you know, every, every year. Right, yeah, yeah, every three or four years or longer sometimes. Um, yeah. And the perfectionism, that ties into the whole things in the background that's where the perfectionism seemed to show up most um either in reshooting for uh, actor response or getting the background uh just right his set decorators must have hated him 
<laughs> yeah, probably. One of the things I found when I was just like doing random research was apparently uh, uh, Kubrick forced Cruz to do a to one scene like I want to say nearly a hundred times, but the scene was just him walking into a building, and that he made <laughs> him just keep walking through the building over and over again, which I feel like had to have been some sort of like mind game on Kubrick's part. He can't have possibly cared, but he wanted to see like how dedicated this at the time huge movie star was going to be to her to his passion project. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely true. I almost feel like it's like that thing they say in the military where they break you down first before they start issuing orders, right? So that they know you'll follow them. Like there's this whole psychological thing. I, I really feel like that was just like a power move. Yeah, and, and that exactly happened in a Full Metal Jacket. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was implied in the movie, and I th- and I believe a lot of that was actually happening when they were making the movie because they were making all the actors that were soldiers go through actual boot camp. Yeah, I know method acting is a thing, but it's almost like method directing. You know, it's like method acting inflicted on actors who are not method actors. Yeah. Like, I'm going to literally make you walk through this door until you're furious at me, and I'm going to literally break up your marriage. <laughs> That's what he did, yeah. That's exactly what he did. Well, more on the more on the voiceover. So, like, when they... Because um, I liked the way it actually appeared in the movie where uh, after the, the... He runs into that group of guys, um, and then they kind of antagonize him. Uh, there's a voiceover that just said, had he become a coward, he asked himself, and he noticed his knees shaking a little bit. Ridiculous. Why would he get, why should he get involved in a street fight with some drunken college kids who had five friends with him? Uh, and so, and then he like, there's like all these reassuring voiceovers to himself, which just don't like, just would, if they actually happen in the movie, I just, yeah. Uh, and, but it, cause it flows so much better when he has like the, the check against his masculinity. And then he immediately is almost uh, rewarded or given a chance to redeem himself with the um, with the prostitute. Yeah, well, show don't tell, right? Um, so it sounds mm-hmm. like the screenplay was all telling, and then it just got stripped down uh, into just showing. Yeah, which maybe is why it's so long. It has a lot to show us that it was normally trying to convey with just words. It has to take the time to show it on his face and show it in his actions over and over again. Also, one of the voiceovers is just says, to be written. So whatever <laughs> screenplay I'm seeing is also not even the final... Uh, draft of the screenplay well there's some controversy about that too some people say the movie was never really finished um obviously the production company had all the incentive in the world to sort of wallpaper over that and say no 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 what we found was 99 percent done and this is his vision and you know so we can release it without a lot of controversy or anything like that but there are some people and some family members who've kind of implied you know that he wasn't entirely happy with it and he was famous for editing editing these things up until the last minute um, and so even though there were a few months to go until release and a lot of films are locked by then or close to then, um, there's some reason to think that maybe it wouldn't have been totally different, but it probably would have been at least a little different. I think so. I guess, I guess you have a point with, they could have taken things out. Um, I mean, we didn't even talk about a lot of the scenes in the movie, but, uh, uh, one of the scenes that felt kind of strange was, uh, uh, the scene where he, when he goes in the costume shop with the Japanese men and then later returns and like he, the, the the store owner had basically changed his mind and now it appears that he's um, uh, prostituting his daughter. And then like it, I, I tried for a while to try to make a connection to the, the general movie and there's only like small little things I could do, but otherwise it just seemed like this weird happenstance thing. The boring interpretation is just that apparently in the original novel, it was Bill's, I don't think his name was Bill, um, but it was Bill's uh, fantasy to be with an underage girl. And he tells this to his wife. They exchange fantasies in the in the novel rather than just she tells him about the dream. Um, so, you know, when he runs into this underage girl later, it's, you know, his potential fantasy, something he's tempted by showing up right in front of him. 
Yeah, I, I believe that might have just been a, just a scene for a laugh because I I believe I read somewhere that he, Kubrick originally wanted this to be a comedy mm-hmm, film. Yeah. yeah, so maybe that's kind of like the spirit of what he originally wanted. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, there, there are rumors that he wanted to make it more like a comedy and cast Steve Martin, I think I read. Um, and obviously it ended up nothing like that at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. The funniest thing about this movie now is just the idea that it ever could have been a comedy. <laughs> um, but you're right. He always has like at least one scene right like that, right? But it's it's always funny, but it's funny like this tastes funny, funny, not like haha funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's always weird funny. Uh, the other interesting thing that uh, there's a difference of in the um, screenplay is in the screenplay there. Uh, uh, I can't remember Nicole Kidman's character name. Alice. Yeah. Alice. You can help. You can remember because she keeps looking in mirrors the whole time. <laughs> uh, that's right. And it's in the dream stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. All right. Anytime anyone's named Alice, I guess I should just I should just get used to the to the, the shorthand of uh, of characters in these movies. Um, but Alice uh, it's not shown on screen her turning the Austrian man down or the Hungarian man down. It's kind of just, he, she just kind of shows up and then it's never actually discussed. But then later it, she brings up that she did not cheat with him, but almost cheated with the other man. Well, that's part, that's part of the theme is like, she didn't actually see him not with the women. He didn't actually see her turn the Hungarian down. He was off doing something else. Mm-hmm. We know what he was doing, but from her perspective and from his perspective, they didn't actually see how those situations concluded. They have to take it on faith. Mm-hmm. Well, that's also uh, one small kind of point is uh, when she started her confession stage, uh, one, the, the visuals are interesting and it was a very kind of basic way, uh, but I just, it was effective, even though it was kind of going back to bread and butter, was that uh, when the camera was on him, it was incredibly still and was on her. It was wiggling around. It was shaking with her. It followed her um, as she was like describing the story. Um, and then the music kind of creeping in. And the music was actually also kind of effective. It was just, you know, kind of dread filling uh, music. But it made me actually feel where when you were starting to have a discussion that you know you're not going to like, you kind of get a pit in your stomach. Like um, like if you hear, like you get a call and someone starts with something's happened and they start walking you through a scene that's kind of very, they were, they're, they're trying to set the stage and it's they're not starting with something good. Uh, and you just know something bad's coming, and you're not sure what it's exactly going to be, that actually was pretty effective at kind of getting that pit in my stomach. If you've ever heard the phrase, we need to talk, like, boom, there it is. Right. Um, and then uh, uh, the strange thing to me in that, in that scene is, most of the time she was unable to hold the thought together because, well, one, she was high, uh, and that totally makes sense. Her, her, her short-term memory <laughs> was kind of going. But the weird thing is that she was able to make it through this kind of complicated story pretty straightforwardly. And that to me confers the idea that she's thought about this a lot. She's been, she's practiced this confession in her mind to the point where she can get through it high. Uh, and I think that's really interesting where she, this is, this is very, uh, this is definitely something her, she's getting it off her chest essentially and segueing into her also kind of reclaiming some sort of power that I've had sexual fantasies too. But I thought that was a small little thing that, uh, that actually was effectively done. And it was uh, it played off of her using drugs. And the fact that she when she was drunk and then later when she was high, she was very out of control. But she was very in control when she was discussing that story. Yeah, that's a good point. This is something she's internalized. She's she's thought about this. This is probably the longest we've ever gone. 
So I'm I'm going to just apologize in advance for whatever massive conversations I have to cut. <laughs> I'm going to be pretty ruthless. Maybe I'll release a director's cut or something. You'll you'll release your first cut, uh, and then you'll die. And then we'll always <laughs> think about all the unused footage. Wild them in the end, you got hit. You can have flaws, problems, but wild them in the end, and you've got a hit.